I'm not John Lennon. I'm just a celebrity impersonator speaking with me voice. But this is a gear podcast devoted to those oldies but moldies classic TV shows, movies and all that rubbish. You should give it a listen, because a splendid time is guaranteed for all. I'm Ed Gross, and this is CloserWeekly.com's classic TV and film podcast, where we celebrate the golden age of film and television, then and now. Nearly 20 years ago, comics historian, comics writer, and executive producer Michael Uslan saw his dream of a dark and dangerous Batman brought to the screen for the first time. It took the form of Tim Burton's 1989 production of Batman, starring Michael Keaton in the title role, and Jack Nicholson as his archenemy, the Joker. This film became a box office sensation, but getting there took more than 10 years of struggle. In the following conversation, Michael details how he acquired the rights to Batman from DC Comics in the first place, his role on every film since, and what an incredible journey it was from the dream of making people put aside the campy TV show from the 1960s to giving them their first taste of The Dark Knight. And for you, obviously that character struck a chord that stayed with you. For you. I mean, they all did, I'm sure, and the whole love of comic books stayed with you. But what was it about Batman that, that made such the impression on you, that became such an important part of your life? Uh, it did. So Batman is one of the rare superheroes who has those superpowers, the first superhero who had no superpower. And because of that, it enables generations of readers to identify with him, to believe to the extent you can believe that if you study real hard, work out real hard, and if you da your dad buys you a cool car, you could be this guy. And, and it was really true. Um, I always contend that Batman's greatest superpower is his humanity. So I think that's the singular most essential aspect of the character and explains why there can be so many varied interpretations and iterations of that character because the one true Batman to any fan out of all the different kinds that have been, appeared in the comics themselves, in movies, in TV, in animation, in video games, the one true Batman is always the one that you were first introduced to usually when you were a kid. And that's your true Batman. And there are very, very few superheroes who have that ability to appeal to everyone in radically different ways. The second element that I think of the four key elements that make Batman so universal and made him so appealing to me was his origin story. It is primal. I mean, I mean, my God, a kid who watches his parents murdered in front of his eyes and at that moment, sacrificing his childhood to make a vow that he's going to get the guy who did this, he's going to get all the, the bad guys, even if he has to walk through hell the rest of his life in order to do it. That's powerful. That's intense. It's primal. And it's a story like the mythological stories that Stan created as well. It's a mythological story that can transcend cultures as well as borders. It's powerful. Third reason. And I go back now to the Stan Lee theory of supervillains. And that is that this, the longest lasting and most successful superheroes have been those who have had the greatest supervillains. Inarguably, Batman has had the greatest supervillain in history in the form of the Joker. And he's had the greatest rogues gallery of villains. 
And uh, I completely agree with Stan that ultimately it is the supervillains who define the superhero. And the fourth element is the car. Uh, I don't care. I don't care. You know, it, it, it had its impact on James Bond. It had its impact on, uh, on, on everybody. Um, but the car, the car, the car, and that works on all levels as well. So I, I think that all adds up to explain why Batman is so popular and so unique and will continue to be so for many more generations. Absolutely. Now, I look at you and your history with the film franchise or with every, obviously, every extended version of Batman there is. In the 70s, what, did you sell your soul to the devil or something? I mean, what was this deal that you struck with DC? Because obviously you're attached to everything with Batman. Well, it's pretty simple uh, in actuality. But it's very hard for anyone today to fathom. So I have to tell the story in the context of its times. So when I acquired the rights from DC with Ben Melnicker in October, 1979, let's go back to that era. Sure. I went to Saul Harrison, who was uh, president of DC at the time. And Saul had been, the person who had mentored me into the comic book business. He was the one that along with Carmine Infantino uh, recruited me to come to work for DC when they started seeing me on TV, listening to me on the radio, reading about me in newspapers and magazines due to the fact that I was teaching at Indiana university, the world's first ever college accredited course on comic books. Right. And they flew me to New York, get, offered me a job, I was working at DC during the summers and then they put me on retainer when I went back out to finish undergrad and then law school at Indiana. And, um, so finally after law school, um, I started working for United artists, which was one of the major movie studios at the time, uh, as a motion picture production attorney in charge of the legal business and financial affairs on pictures to be developed and produced. And some of the pictures I, that I was uh, overseeing in those respects were the first few Rocky movies, Black Stallion, um, uh, Apocalypse Now for two and a half years, Raging Bull. I, I got incredible training and learning how you produce and finance movies and networking and meeting um, the people in the industry, ranking people in the industry. So I went back to Saul. And, you know, I had already written Batman comics. I'd been writing Batman comics as well as The Shadow and other ones since I was in college. And he knew that how much I love comic books, how much I love DC, how much I love Batman. He knew I was a comic book historian as well as a writer of Batman. And um, he knew I was a DC loyalist. So I said, Saul, I want to buy the rights to Batman and make dark and serious movies. Um, nobody's ever done that before. And for me, I have been on a quest since the Batman TV show had premiered, which horrified me <laughs> yeah. at that time. Uh, because while the car was cool and the sets were elaborate, <clears throat> it was in color, I realized that the world was laughing at Batman. They were playing him as a joke, and that just killed me. 
So I had always vowed I was going to one day find a way to show the world the true Batman, my true Batman, uh, the true Batman to Bill Finger, Bob Kane, and Jerry Robinson, three guys who I've been lucky enough to actually know and talk to in my life. I may be one of only one or two people left standing who actually knew and talked to the three of them. Um, so I, I needed to figure out a way to show the world the, the 1939 Batman, the creature of the night stalking terribly disturbed criminals from the shadows. I needed to figure out a way to, and this was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do. And it's taken 50 years <laughs> to, to attempt to do it. And we're still not across the finish line is to find a way to erase from the collective consciousness of the world culture those three words, how, zap, and when. <laughs> Good luck. And, oh, my God. You know, I'll never forget when our first movie came out. Revolutionary, a dark and serious Batman. <sighs> yeah, and, and the first headlines, pow, zap, wham, dark and serious <laughs> Batman appears. Uh, or, you know, or when Frank did Dark Knight Returns, it was pow, zap, wham, Dark Knight Returns shows a gritty Batman. Oh my God, they, they've haunted us forever. So Saul, Saul was appalled. He was, he was appalled when I told him I wanted to buy the rights to Batman. He blanched. He says, he was very fatherly toward me. He says, Michael, for God's sake, I don't want to see you lose all your money, <laughs> but, don't you, but don't you understand since the Batman TV show went off the air, the Batman brand is as dead as a dodo nobody's interested in Batman anymore. And I said, yeah, but Saul, if, if we can show him in a dark and serious way, nobody's ever seen a movie like that. It'll almost be like a new form of entertainment. And he shook his head. He goes, is there any way I can talk you out of this? And I thought about it for a second. I went, no. And he sighed and shrugged and said, all right, come on in. And that began a six month negotiation. Uh, culminating in October 3rd, 1979, when we acquired the rights to Batman. I put it in my back pocket. I quit my job. I went out to Hollywood knowing this was going to be a slam dunk that all the studios are going to line up at my door when they realize the potential for sequels and toys and games and animation and everything that's going to come out of it. Uh, only to be shocked out of my senses when I was turned down by every single studio and mini major in Hollywood and repeatedly was told I was crazy that you can't do serious comic book movies. I was told I was nuts that you can't do dark superheroes. I was told I was out of my mind because you cannot make movies out of old TV series. That's never been done. So as a result, from the time I bought the rights to Batman till I was, till we were able to get that first movie made took 10 long years, 10 years of a human endurance contest, 10 years of not knowing where my next dollar was going to come from, yeah. 10 years of having my back up against the wall, 10 years of hearing nothing but rejection, 10 years of being told I was crazy, 10 years of studios telling me this is the worst idea we've ever heard. And when that happens, let me tell you something you got to search deep inside your soul. You, it tests your mettle as a human being. And I had to ask myself the burning question, is everybody right and I'm wrong, I'm just being stubborn? Right. Or 
am I right? Do I really believe in this? Do I really believe in myself? And I kept coming up with the latter answer. And for 10 years, I was trying to find ways to hold on by my bloody fingertips. And uh, um, it was it was a siege. And I considered myself to be Batman's Batman. Uh, I was trying to defend him and protect him. I was not going to let this go the way of pow, zap, wham, and, all, and comedy craziness. And there were companies that said, hey, that's what audiences love and remember. If you want to do it that way, we'll do it. And there was no way I was going to let that go. Right. Um, it, 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 it was a difficult period of my life. Now, didn't you also have in that period, was that, I assume this was under you, like Tom Mankiewicz doing that screenplay and stuff for a Batman movie? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I work closely with Tom. Tom yeah. is great. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was terrific. But again, you know, context of the time when we were getting this thing underway, late 79 into early 80, um, the, the only reference point for genre movies like this for the blockbuster was pretty much, you know, Goldfinger and the Bond movies. And uh, so initially, we were looking at two writers who were the two best Bond writers, which were Tom Mankiewicz and Richard Maybaum. We were looking at guy, people like Guy Hamilton, who had directed Goldfinger. We were looking at Ken Adam uh, as, a, as a potential guy who could uh, be production designer. Uh, that was ground zero for where we started. But when we did start, I did a 17-page single-space type memo which was the creative blueprint going forward for a dark and serious Batman. And, um, you know, from the earliest days, from, uh, as of um, Memorial Weekend 1980, I was completely convinced that Jack Nicholson was the only actor of that era who could play the Joker. Really? And that's a whole story, too, of, of, of how that came to be. Um, I don't know if you read that in the book, but... Um, it was the beginning of Memorial Weekend. I was getting on a bus out of New York City, heading back home to New Jersey. Picked up the afternoon paper in, in New York, which was the Post at that time. Opened it up to the movie section and talked about two big movies opening up. One was Empire Strikes Back and the other one was The Shining. And there for the first time, I saw that iconic picture of Jack Nicholson <clears throat> that's come to be known as the Here's Johnny shot. Yep where he's maniacally peering like from around the door. And I said, Oh my God, this is the Joker. And I tore it out. And when I got home, I ran to my desk. I took white out and I whited out Jack's face. I took a red magic marker. I redid his lips. I took a green magic marker. I redid his hair. And I showed that to everyone at the studio, to anyone who would look to ultimately to Tim Burton and, um, uh, that was my crusade. And the day Jack Nicholson was actually hired was, was probably the greatest day of my career to that moment. I hope you have that image framed somewhere. I do. Good. <laughs> you know, I'm a geek. I, I'm a geek. I don't throw anything out. I save everything. <laughs> That's right. That's good. That's the way it should be. <laughs> and I actually reprinted it in my book, The Boy Who Loved Batman. Oh, I'll have you to go back to there. that. I have to go look for that. Okay. Yeah. I didn't see it. So what turned it around then, Michael? I mean, you had all these doubters. I mean, obviously Superman, the movie was a big hit in 78 and had its sequels. At least the first one was good. Uh, what changed their minds and suddenly, not suddenly, but eventually let you go and said, yes, let's do a dark version of Batman. There were two things that happened and both happened around late 86. And that was 
number one, when Tim Burton waltzed into our lives. Um, and number two was the publication of The Dark Knight Returns. Okay. Now, The Dark Knight Returns did not have a creative impact on the project. Tim already had his vision uh, set for it. But what it did was it showed the powers that be in Hollywood who, you know, were all adults from the Wortham era of comics who kind of looked down their nose at comic book characters and their creators and truly believed that Superman was the one and only comic book superhero capable of being turned into a blockbuster. Nothing else had value, not at DC, not at Marvel. And, um, that was, that was a tough, tough thing to deal with. But with the birth of the graphic novel leading to the dark Knight returns, the studio people involved in finance, distribution, marketing, they began to realize that, hey, maybe these comic book things are not just for 8 to 12-year-old boys anymore. Maybe there's something more to it. Maybe if we put our money into it, there is an adult market out there worldwide. And in that regard, it was helpful to what we were doing and to what our goals were. Right. But in... But of course, it came down to the fact that um, I believe there were two geniuses working on our first Batman movie, um, Tim Burton and my dear friend Anton First, who is no longer with us. Um, I truly believe to this very day that the vision of Tim Burton on that first movie, the design work of Anton First on that first movie, who designed not only Gotham City, but the Batmobile, the whole look of the picture. And I would even add Danny Elfman to that with yeah. the music, the notes of Danny Elfman. These three things continue to resonate today in every single genre movie that comes out. It's influenced every filmmaker, every writer. Um, it's, it's unbelievable the impact that they have had long term. So when we talk about Batman 89 as being revolutionary, it was. But it wasn't simply about the end-all, be-all of box office success. It was the impact it had on the world culture, the impact it had on – it changed Hollywood. It changed the comic book industry. Um, you begin to add these things up, and uh, it's, it's pretty stunning. It's pretty stunning of what came. And beautifully, we're about uh, approaching now the 30th anniversary of that movie. Yeah. And I've already been booked to speak about it. Uh, a lot of Comic-Cons and universities are going to have screenings of the movie next year. And I'm going to be talking about the making of the movie and, uh, and what it meant and uh, kind of the, the story behind it all. Um, it really holds up beautifully. And uh, very, very proud of how that changed the nature of things um, and how important it is in retrospect. If you look at it from, that, from strictly uh, like an academic point of view, uh, it, its influence was astonishing. And for you, after going through that struggle of, again, as you said to me earlier, wondering if you're the crazy one in all this, what kind of vindication was that to you? It was a dream come true for me. Um, I'm not really an I told you so kind of guy. Um, I try to make my case 
with reason, with facts, with passion. And um, you do what you can do in the world of Hollywood because at the end of the day, the power and the final decision making, unless you're Steven Spielberg or, you know, a, a couple of handfuls of others, mm-hmm. uh, that the power and decision making rests with the people or the companies with the money. And uh, and they're going to make the decisions that they make, you know, generally in the motion picture industry, not talking specifically Batman now. What used to be just movie studios are now international conglomerates. They own many different businesses. A lot of different wheels need to be greased. And unfortunately, as far as I'm concerned, uh, from time to time, um, different studios, different companies become very enamored with merchandising, licensing, toys, games, and Happy Meals. And when they become so enamored with that, that they direct filmmakers to make movies that are lighter, brighter, kitty-friendly, family-friendly, that have lots of toy potential, lots of armor, uh, at least three heroes, at least three villains in a movie. Each must have two costume changes and two vehicles or the toy companies won't be happy. Then you've got the tail wagging the dog. And as I've always contended, you're no longer making movies. What you're making are two-hour infomercials for toys. And the best way to counter that is to find the powers that be who understand that if you find filmmakers, great filmmakers who have a passion for a character, who have a vision for a story, whom you believe know how to execute that, then you are going to be making great movies. And um, as a producer, I believe there are 10 rules to making a great movie. Number one story, number two story, number three story, (laughs) number four story, number five story, number six character, number seven character, number eight story, number nine story, and number 10 story. A lot of story there, my friend. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, um, look, we were fortunate enough after, uh, you know, Warner were, went through the um, era of Batman and Robin and Catwoman that when the new management came in, they were willing to put the keys to their most valuable franchise in the hands of a independent filmmaker who had not made a blockbuster movie before. And Chris Nolan was able to restore the darkness and dignity to Batman and raise the bar for all comic book movies in the process. When you walked out of a Christopher Nolan movie, you didn't have to say anymore, oh, that was a great comic book movie. You could say that was a great film. Oh, yeah. And that has made all the difference. And I list Chris Nolan as the third genius that I've been fortunate enough to be involved in projects with. And uh, there's no denying it that the Dark Knight trilogy, which I don't consider to be three movies, I consider it as one movie in three acts, beautifully structured. Uh, it really, truly did raise the bar. And um, uh, there's a place for popcorn movies to just go have fun on a summer night, be entertained with your date. But there's also room for movies and superheroes that truly make you think that have themes with dramatic heft to it and thematic heft to it. And I'm very proud of that. Absolutely. So what is, how would you describe the state of the bat, so to speak, these days then, you know, as we're going forward now, what is the state of the bat? (laughs) Promising, exciting, 
um, working with filmmakers and writers and executives who really care. Um, and I think the results are going to prove that with upcoming movies like uh, Matt Reeves, The Batman, and um, Todd Phillips, The Joker. So now your name goes on all the animated movies and all this stuff, but th is that again, do you just like give notes and, and they make their movies kind of thing? And... Yeah, there are brilliant people working in animation and have over the years. Right. Brilliant people. Uh, you look at the work of Bruce Timm, Paul Dini, Eric Radomski, Alan Burnett, um, Andrea Romano, the queen of voice casting and voice direction. Oh, yeah. You look at the talent pool of people like Kevin Conroy and my friend Mark Hamill. I said to Mark, if, if they ever build a Mount Rushmore for the Joker, it's going to be Jack Nicholson, Heath Ledger, and Mark Hamill on it. Yeah. That is the impact that he's had on that. And I will say unequivocally, unequivocally that uh, Batman Mask of the Phantasm is arguably the best Batman story ever told in the media. Um, and ho again, holds up beautifully. So um, the animation has been brilliant and wonderful things have come out of it. So you give the credit where credit is due. You give the spotlight to them and they don't get the spotlight as much as they should. So, and uh, today we have Sam Register at uh, Warner Animation. Sam's terrific. Um, uh, he and I co-conspired to get Stan Lee the one thing he really wanted, which was a cameo in a DC movie. And we got that done in Teen Titans Go to the Movies, which everybody loved and everybody will, uh, I think, will cherish going forward. So um, you've got great people like Mike Carlin over there who moved over from the comic book company side to the animation side. You've got really, really top people who love these characters and care about these characters and have a history with these characters. So um, in a lot of times, I will describe myself as the greatest cheerleader in the world. Um, I, you know, to, to me, my main job from inception, but especially now, is simply continuing to be Batman's Batman and doing everything I can, wherever I can, to defend and protect him. For much more on Michael and his connection with Batman, head over to Amazon.com and order a copy of his memoir, The Boy Who Loved Batman. And for much more of this podcast, please subscribe, share it with your friends, and really go crazy by giving us a five-star review. We'll be back next week, same bat time, same bat channel. Thanks for listening.